morning, everybody. You know, um, <clears throat> the more I walk with the Lord, the more I, I get a sense that he wants to move us from tools that he uses to become friends that he sends. And he sends you because he knows you and he sends you in his name and in his power. Almost nine years ago, we, we went to Kelowna because we felt the Lord sending us to a university uh, demographic. The university was just, had just taken over by, by uh, Okanagan College had just been taken over by UBC. And we knew that the campus was going to swell to about 9,000 students, which is not big compared to UC, but for Kelowna, it's big. And we went there. We were sent. Didn't exactly know what we were going to do when we got there. We just knew that we were sent. And very quickly, we, we got busy. But the university wanted nothing to do with us. The university was very, very standoffish to any Christian influence of any kind. In fact, they, they were even a little hostile. But we continued to build uh, the, the ministry. Uh, we have a warehouse right by the university, and we were doing services on a Sunday night for the students, and, and that began to grow. And life just moves along. In 2010, 2010, uh, I get this ever, this tiny little nudge. It's, it starts out like an idea and then becomes an obsession. And um, I, I, I felt that uh, I was to uh, finish a PhD in counseling. And I got, a, I, I was accepted by the California State Christian University and to do my research and to finish my, my studies. And for some strange reason, somebody that just does not like school, I sure go back an awful lot. Um, and there was grace to do the work, there was grace to do the research, and there was grace to complete it. Once I completed that, and again, this is just so not in my wheelhouse of focus at the time, I became a certified psychopath. Uh, no, psychotherapist. Uh, uh, I became a certified psychotherapist. Years go by, and in 2015, the university was inundated. Their there's two therapists on campus, and they, are, they were just inundated. They couldn't, there's three and four week backlog. And they said, who can we send students to? Who, who, who is there in the city that we can send them to? And somebody gave them my name. And so in 2015, I started to get a flood of university students coming. And before the year was over, the university said, hey, uh, what if we give you an office right in the middle of the campus, right in the student service building? Why don't we give you an office? We, would you come? we need you here. We need you here. And this, is, this does not happen. The university doesn't play nice with anybody, not even within itself. But they invited us, they gave us an office. And so I've been parked there and serving there um, as a caregiver. And the ministry opportunities are 
unprecedented. Like the, the amount of brokenness that comes through that office and the amount of, I mean, think about it. What, you send them off at 18 to go to university. They are babies. They don't know anything at 18. 21 is the new 16. When you were 16, you were about as mature as the average 21, 22-year-old today. I'm serious. I'm not making fun. And so we've sent them to school, and they're, they're just so not prepared. And then they're just hit with all of the exams and the pressure and the stress and the drugs and the sex and, and all of that. And they make all kinds of mistakes, and then they need someone to talk to. And Jesus sent a friend of his to occupy an office and care for people. And I'm telling you, it's messy, and it's dirty, and it's fun, and it's really rewarding. That's a big part of what, what I do during my weeks. And then I, I, I preach at, uh, in our services on Sunday morning, Sunday night. And, uh, and I found the way to get your sin rate down is just get busy. And we're really busy, and they don't sin nearly as much. It's really quite fantastic. I'm thinking of writing a book on it. I want to talk to you about the gold coin of heaven's currency this morning. I want to talk to you about divine love shed abroad in your heart. And I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians for that. I'm going to read the whole chapter through and then I'm going to make some points. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, it's not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, where there is prophecies they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is incomplete disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childhood. I put ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So I, when I was going through this passage, and I know that most of you are very familiar, familiar with it, I saw three sections. The first section I see here is Paul saying that, that religion or spirituality without love is impotent. If it, love is not the thing that's driving your spiritual gift, you are wasting your time. You're just fooling yourself. There will be no fruitfulness. 
And then he goes on and describes in very practical terms what love is. And love is kind and it's patient and it's honoring. And he goes and he lists that. But then in verses 9 to 12, and this is what I want to come to you with. I saw something when I was looking at this passage I've never seen before. Paul connects love, which is what this whole chapter is about, to our spiritual seeing. You know how the scripture calls us to be a people who set our eyes on the things that are not seen rather than the things that are seen? We're a people that live our lives in response. Our orientation point is the kingdom of God. When that's kind of invisible. But Paul connects spiritual revelation and love. Is it possible that he is saying here that divine revelation ignites supernatural love in a human heart? And when I use the term revelation here, I'm simply talking about when, when, when uh, the, the Holy Spirit lifts a veil. When you see something that is unseeable, when you discern something, when your spiritual intuition is very heightened, you're very sharp that way. It's, it's, it's when you see the things that were established from the foundations of the world as reality so that you can make heaven's reality earth's reality. You usher heaven to earth. Do you remember when Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free? The word truth there is the same word. It's the word reality. When you see reality. And Christ demonstrated what it was like to walk in revelation. He he said this, he said, in John 5, he said, the son can't independently do a thing. Only what he sees the father doing. For what the father does, the son does. And the father loves the son. And he includes him in everything that he's doing. You see, Jesus was somehow so connected to the heart of the father. That that he, he... He saw what the Father was doing. He perceived what God was doing. But not only did he perceive what God was doing, he saw how the Father saw people. And when he saw how God saw people, it produced heaven's goal in his soul. It produced compassion and love and faith and hope. And then he gave out of that, and it was a healing flow that came from the Father through the Son. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus is in Jericho, and uh, he is having something of a meeting. And there's a blind guy that is really annoying, Bartimaeus trying to have a meeting, and Bartimaeus won't stop shouting and hollering, won't stop making a ruckus. Every, ushers try to kick him out. Everybody tries to get him to shut up, get him to be quiet, just be quiet. And finally, Jesus says, Bartimaeus, whoa, what do you want? And Bartimaeus says, I want to see. And so Jesus heals him. And when Jesus heals Bartimaeus, you know what he's doing? He's revealing the heart of the Father. Because there's not a father in this room who wouldn't do the same thing for their child if they had the power to do it. 
in John chapter 8, the religious people, Jesus warned his disciples one time, he said, be careful of the leaven of Herod and be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the leaven of this, and he's talking about a religious system where God is not at the center. And these Pharisees, they found a woman, they caught a woman in adultery. And so they drag her out into the middle of the square. And, and, and now they're going to exercise a right they have to stone her to death. And really, they're doing this all to prove a, a religious point. That's what they're doing. And they say to Jesus, you know, the law of Moses gives us the right. What do you say? And Jesus looks at them. You know how it goes. And he said, at him who has the, no sin, throw, throw the first stone. Go ahead. Yeah, you have the right. But the person without sin, you, you start. And Jesus' words, they, they have so much authority that he completely disarms these men, these leaders. He completely disarms them. And not only do his, his words have authority, but his very presence has so much authority that the environment shifts. And they all leave. And you know what you're left with? You're left with Jesus alone with an adulteress. And the environment changed and it went from a shaming, judging, humiliating environment to an environment that is sacred and healing. It became a father-daughter moment. And the crowd is standing at a distance and they're watching. And Jesus couldn't care less. Because what he cares about, that is a daughter is being restored to the father right here and right this moment. That's all that matters because that's what the father was doing and that's what Jesus did. And because he aligned himself with that, not only did he bear the father's heart, but he wore his authority. Paul's ongoing prayer to the churches was that you'd be filled with the wisdom of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. That you be filled with the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. If you want to love like they loved in the first century. If you want to walk in strength and power. Then the veil is going to have to be lifted. And your eyes are going to be opened. And divine perspective changes everything. I promise you it changes everything. In his book, in Stephen Covey's book. Um, seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He talks about a businessman who commutes into town. And when you commute into town with the same group of people for years and years, you have something of a community. And at one of the stops, a man came onto the train and into their little community. And, and, and his children were, 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 were rangy. They were, they were already agitated and upset and and, and the man just buried his face in the paper and his kids were just fussing and fighting and, and, and it went on and on and they'd bump a coffee over and tear a newspaper and spill something on someone else until one of the businessmen in the car turns to the father and says, sir, can you not see the chaos that your children have created here? Wouldn't, 
please do something. And the, and the man, he clues in just kind of halfway through the rebuke. And he looks at his kids. And he looks back at the businessman. And he said, we, we've been at the hospital all night. And um, their mother and my wife died this morning. And I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing with anything right now. And I'm pretty sure they don't have a clue either. So no, sir, I'm not doing anything. And he buried his face back in the paper. And that moment right there, that revelation right there changed everything. Instead of being annoyed with these, these little hellions, instead of being annoyed with them and angry with them and frustrated with the father, this, the, the, the businessman said, all I wanted to do, all I wanted to know is how can I help you today? Just, I, it's all I want to know and I don't even know how to ask. And divine revelation is exactly the same. It changes the human heart. See, you and I, we have a call on our lives to be salt and to be light and to be leaven. And you cannot do that by mirroring the world back at them. The only way you could be salt and light and leaven is if you are mirroring heaven back to the world that you live in. And the only way you can see that is that if the veil is lifted... Operating from divine perspective actually just makes you a better person. Makes you smell better. Makes people want to be around you. Ever had somebody walk in and their cologne is just delicious? You just, you just, you just walk close to them. You, just, you creep out on them because they smell so darn good. Bill Johnson is a pastor in... Redding, California, and he tells a story about how a student in their Bible school woke up one morning and she had a desperate need. She needed a $500 miracle just to be able to stay in school. And so she's seeking God for her $500 miracle. And Bill Johnson was teaching the first year students that morning. And he said, I have a question. Starts the morning out with this. He said, I have a question. Anybody in here, anybody in here, I'm... Uh, Praying for a $500 miracle this morning? And, and this gal's like, whoa, whoa. And she sheepishly puts her hand up and says, that, that, yeah, that, that was me? And Bill Johnson takes a $50 bill out of his pocket and he gives it to her. And he said, it's not 500 but the 500's in the 50 darling. Just like there's an oak tree and an acorn. Do you understand? She goes, I think so. Finishes school that day. Well, that evening, she's at the grocery store picking up some groceries. And the family in front of her at the checkout finds themselves utterly humiliated because they don't have enough money to pay for all their groceries. And this girl's joy, her heart starts bubbling. And she's so happy because she knows why she was given 50 bucks this morning. She knows what to do with the 50 bucks. And she knows that she, so she reaches out. She goes, I can help. Here you go. Here's $50. And the, the, the joy in the exchange was fantastic. It was wonderful because it, it, it created 
It shifted the atmosphere. It made room instead of for stress. It made room for joy and lots of hugs. And her heart was full and she went home. And while she's trying to get into her apartment, a car pulls up. Person calls her over and says, here, and gives her a $500 check. It's a true story. Now, I wish all our miracles happened that fast, but uh, I think one of the reasons they don't is that I don't, I don't think God trusts you. Um, uh, if everything worked that fast, we'd have a racket going before the afternoon is over. But one of the things, see, see quick miracles, they, they can inspire faith. They really do. But you know when things take a long time, it inspires faith and character. One of the things that when you begin to realize that you're a friend that Jesus has sent, you don't rush over the small moments. You begin to look for his purposes in the small moments. Learning to seize the, 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 the moments is such a big deal. So many of us are looking for that one big touch that changes everything. But God has chosen to set in motion a process that changes everything, which calls us to oneness, which calls us to intimacy, and which calls us to, 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 to walking as ones who are being sent. And I wonder how often we miss God moments because we're rarely present in our own moments. I read about this, uh, this church deacon that didn't deke very well. And the minister is trying to get him to just lean into the people, please. Just care for somebody, please. But, and to try and get him engaged, he, he said, can I ask you to do something for me? Our youth group goes to the nursing home once a month to lead a worship service. Could you just help get them there? And the deacon thought to himself, what a waste of time. But whatever. I'll do it. And so he drives the youth group to the nursing home. And, and then he just stands at the back with his arms crossed, waiting for them to do their thing. And while he's standing back there, somebody is pulling on his arms, on his jacket. And he looks to beside him, and there's an old man in a wheelchair. And he drops his hand, and the old man grabs his, the deacon's hand... And he holds onto his hand, and for the entire service, the two of them stand like that. Well, the one in the chair and the deacon standing there holding the old man's hand. And the next month when they went back, the exact same thing happened. And then the next month, the same thing happened. And for the next several months, the exact same thing happened. Until the deacon went back to go hold his buddy's hand, and he wasn't there. And he asked the nurse, and she said, he's not well, he's dying. He's unconscious, but if you'd like to go pray for him, I'll show you his room. And the deacon goes uh, into the man's room, and he sits down, and he takes a hold of his hand, like they've been doing for all these months now. And the deacon begins to pray for the man's soul. He begins to intercede on 
on behalf of this man. And, and after he prayed what he, a, a prayer that came out of his very core, uh, but just before he stood up, the, the old man squeezed his hand. And the deacon realized his prayer had been heard. And this experience moved him so deeply, he's just, he's just bawling. And he stumbles out into the hallway, and there's a lady there who says, he's been waiting for you, you know that. And he looked at her and he said, excuse me? She said, that's my father in there. And she told, or my father told me that Jesus has been coming here and holding my hand for one hour at a time every month. And I didn't want to die until I had the chance to hold Jesus' hand just one more time. How often do we miss the, 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 the moment and the presence of God in the moment because we're in such a hurry? When Paul said that these three remain, he said, faith, love, and hope... And the greatest of these is love. He is showing us, revealing to us the gold coin of God's currency. God doesn't like gold. He loves love. Because God's not made out of gold. He's made out of love. And I think about it, and I don't want to stretch it too far, but you know the streets of gold? What if they're love? What if the environment is just the healthiest environment what if that's the picture that we should be thinking about rather than finding ways to mine the pavement just so that we can put it in our mansions? <laughs> but when you, when, when, when you go as one who is sent, a friend who is sent, I promise you this, you walk with more authority because you walk intentionally. When the very core of your being, the things that are operating and driving your walk are faith, love, and hope, your, your life has more weight. It has more impact. And environments shift around you. The, the kind of authority that I'm talking about is just, we see it so often demonstrated in Mother Teresa. I read a, an interesting article about... A, there's a, a city in Pennsylvania, and they have this enormous mental hospital on the outskirts of town. And uh, the, the hospital is full of mentally, emotionally, and psychologically disturbed people. And the directors of the hospital had come to the city with a proposal that, to, to build a dozen or so halfway houses throughout the city in the, in the neighborhoods, and these would be houses that would be manned by a, you know, a caregiver, but, but patients that were slowly getting better and moving towards full mental and emotional health, they, they, could, they could slowly begin to integrate into the communities and get jobs. And when the story hit the paper, there was this massive outcry of disapproval. Nobody wants the crazies living next door. And so they, uh, City Hall announced that they would be voting on this. Um, and, and, and prior to the vote, the, 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 the hall was absolutely packed. Over 500 people. And there was so much shouting and screaming that they couldn't even really have a conversation. And so there was very little conversation around it. It just seemed like everybody was opposed to this plan. 
And so they voted unanimously against building halfway houses. And no sooner had the vote happened than the big back doors open. And literally, literally, Mother Teresa walked in. She was in the city for a, um, uh, a, a dedication ceremony for the Sisters of Charity organization that she founded. And she'd heard about the, the, what the hospital wanted to do, and, and she'd got to the meeting as quick as she could. And, the, and, and she walked to the, to, the, to the front, and she got on her knees in front of the council members, and she said, in the name of Jesus, please make room for these. Make room for these children of God. Because when you reject them, you reject Jesus. And when you accept them, you embrace Jesus. And then with her arm raised, she said five times, she said, in the name of God, please, 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 please make room for these children of God in your communities. And then she got up and she left. Mother Teresa walks in such authority that the atmosphere shifted, like I've been talking about. She walks with such authority that you could hear a pin drop where minutes ago there was rioting. Now nobody's saying anything. And then one council member makes a motion to reconsider their decision. And after a little bit of discussion, time goes by, the committee decides to vote in favor of the halfway houses. And what the newspaper said was absolutely amazing is that not one peep from the crowd, not one word spoken in opposition to what she had to say because she walked in such authority. Where did she get that authority? She got that authority by laying down her life again and again for, for, for the poorest of the poor, for the dying, for the sick. She got that authority because she was a friend that Jesus sent to the streets of Calcutta to help people die. That's where she got that authority. So let me close with this. It's a prayer that I prayed. I just wrote it. I said, the eyes are the portal to the soul. God spit on my eyes that I might see the wonder and the beauty of your image in the people that walk in and through my life. And God, then may heaven be released through me as I affirm to them what I see. For these three remain, faith, love, and hope. And the greatest of these is love. Amen.